Welcome to the Future Smart Parent Podcast, a place where my mom explores how to help us kids develop a new set of skills we need to face the future with confidence. I'm Jude Filston, an introverted mom trying my best to raise kids who are happy and confident, kids who embrace all that makes them unique while preparing them for an exciting future that really looks nothing like the world we grew up in. I believe there's a whole set of skills that our kids aren't being taught. These skills will be critical for them to develop in order to thrive in the future. It's up to us as parents to help them develop these skills. The Future Smart Parent podcast provides resources for parents and kids who want to be ready for all the ways in which the future is going to be different from today. We will explore this future together, bringing insights from top futurists, resources from smart people working on making our lives better, and most importantly, stories of parents who are parenting a little differently, yet very much intentionally for a changing world. So join me as we explore how we can be future smart parents raising future smart kids. Welcome to episode eight, where I chat with Kim Day about the work that the school she teaches at is doing and has been doing for decades, where they provide a child-centered holistic system of education and why adapting our current educational system is so critical as well as totally doable for the 21st century. Kim is a teacher with a passion for learning. She's curious about the possibilities for creating learning environments that engage kids and help them to flourish. She's involved in projects that innovate within the traditional systems of education and is a teacher at Manor Gardens Primary School, a government school in Durban. I have to tell you that I was recording this podcast episode from our pantry as the kids were playing outside and the new, and the noise levels were through the roof. Our dog, who can't be away from me for more than two minutes, was then trying to open the pantry door as we started, which is why the beginning of the conversation went in the direction that it went in. I could have edited it out, but decided to leave it in because, well, Future Smart Parent is really about doing parenting in real life, and sometimes that means hiding in the pantry. This episode is 40 minutes, so a little bit longer than normal, but do check out the show notes if you would prefer to jump to specific parts of the conversation. Cool, let's jump right in. I love that it's so authentic, and I think that this is exactly what the 21st century is all about. This is it. We're doing it. I mean, I'm here to tell you a few things, but we're, this is absolutely innovative, flexible, agile, able to find a quiet space in your pantry, doing what needs doing, you know, making a plan. That's it. That's exactly, in a nutshell, that's what we hope to encourage with our children. Exactly. And just yeah. not being perfect. I think that's my big thing is, and that's what stopped me up until now. You know what I mean? Just yeah. trying to get everything perfect and life isn't perfect, is it? No, it's not perfect, but that comes from your socialization. That comes from yeah. your schooling. And it also comes from when our parents were raising us, right? It, we needed to be perfect. We needed to be a beautiful example of they having raised us well. We represented our family. We weren't allowed to get anything wrong. Our parents weren't allowed to get anything wrong. And so we had to just know everything off the bat, which is ridiculous, because how were we ever supposed to know how to get everything perfect? And I think that's one of the biggest things that um, teachers particularly battle with, is having to get it perfect before you iterate, before you put anything out into the public domain. It needs to be perfect. And if it's not, you need to have the answers for all the questions that people are going to ask about why it's not perfect, 
there we go. That's the product of schooling, as we've known. Totally. And I think that's also what makes it so difficult to make the transition or to adapt how we are schooling and parenting our kids at the moment, because we don't have the perfect answer. We don't have any answers. We're exploring. We're taking new steps. and. Yes. That makes it really difficult. I mean, again, it's just different parenting. Like, yes. listen to our kids. What? Let them guide us. Wow. I know. Like, I know. Like, I know. No, that's not what we know. <laughs> yeah. And how will they know what's good for them? Well, they'll know what's good for them because they will be just intuitively doing what they are doing. In the same way that when children are small, they play a lot. They're learning all the time. That's their work. And then we have this arbitrary, like, chronological age where we decide that that's done. That learning through play is just done. And now we need to get serious and we need yeah. to get seated and we need to be in a formal environment. And it worked for a time, but it's not relevant for the 21st century. Kim, I did want to ask you very specifically how you think learning is different now as we prepare our kids for this changing future. So I think that learning is the key word. I think the shift that's occurred is from teaching which is imparting information, to actually learning. In learning, the children are engaged in the process. They've got agency. They're able to craft their own learning pathway along with the teacher instead of having it um, put onto them. So learning, for me, is an active process Whereas before, children were very passive, just receiving whatever it was that the teacher decided they needed to know, according to the curriculum and then obviously according to the individual adults. Mm -hmm. So what's different and what needs to uh, change is that idea that children cannot be a part of their own learning process and that they are not um, capable of crafting their own learning journey it's tough that it's tough to get your head around isn't it because I mean just with my two kids who are not in a mainstream school it's difficult to know how to uh, structure that for them I know we've just said we listen to the kids and we help them um, that they can also drive it but how do we do that but I think understanding that we are in a knowledge economy is helpful to know that in the 21st century, we are working with information. It's largely due to globalization and the technologies that we have available to us that we can use as tools. But in the knowledge economy, everybody's creating knowledge all the time. It doesn't rest only in the hands of a few. Mm. Before you had to be in academia, you had access to the knowledge. But now, anybody that has a, an opportunity to share information, to come alongside and work with other people, you're combining what you know and your life experiences together with the information available to you and in that way creating knowledge and understanding. So it's not to say that children should just be left free to do whatever it is that they choose. You can definitely guide them. I think an, a, an initial step is just the recognition that children should be engaging in their own learning process. Asking good questions, looking to see what they're interested in is a beautiful starting point. Not just deciding that this is what children should be learning in a curriculum that we have, at, you know, in the school situation, for example, the curriculum is very clear on what should be covered. 
I'm not advocating that we don't follow a curriculum. Every country has a curriculum. It's a, it's a guidance system. If you read the curriculum, you'll see exactly where your children should be at each developmental stage. I'm arguing for a different way of, of delivery. I'm saying we don't have to have a one-size-fits-all program. We can okay. customize it more to individual interests and individual strengths, individual needs. So the curriculum is the curriculum is still there to guide, but it's the way that the kids engage with it. Right. That it's, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. The curriculum is solid. Our, our curriculum, our CAPS curriculum, what has happened is that the curriculum is great, but then it's been really, really, really prescriptive in, in its design. It's never intended for that. If you look at the curriculum documents, it actually says that teachers are supposed to take that curriculum and craft it for their own individual classes, make it relevant. But there's so much that goes into the talk around the curriculum that the myth, I believe it's a myth, maybe people will argue with me, is that we should all be doing it in the same way. I don't think that's ever what was intended. In week, uh, in, in this week, you should be covering this, and in this week, you should be covering that. If that's not where your children are at for that particular time and place, it will be okay to cover that section at a later stage. It, it is okay to do the curriculum in different orders. Yeah. But everything that you need to know, for example, you, Jude, where would your children need to be at particular ages? You can go to the curriculum and you can see it details very beautifully where they should be at with reading, writing, what maths concepts they should be covering, the number range that they should be using. It's all there. Just how they embrace it. and, and How they engage with it and how, yeah. I believe, how teachers set up the learning environment. It's very, very important that we remember as teachers that we are still responsible for setting up the environment. The curriculum cannot set up our teaching environment. It cannot set up our classroom for us. So we've got a lot of um, a freedom to be creative in how we deliver the curriculum. Yeah, so I think I've had a very negative thinking around curriculum because I suppose it's not the curriculum that should get the bad rap, but it's how we deal with the curriculum. So hearing what you're saying now is is good for me. Um, it's not the curriculum that is bad. It's it's how we um, interpret it. So, so that leads me on to um, my second question. So I know that, well, I mean, I came in, into contact with you a couple of years ago when you were sharing some of your story about the work that you do as a teacher at Manor Gardens uh, Primary School. Um, and I was fascinated just to hear how you were um, combining this, uh, the, the approaches. So can you tell us a little bit about Manor Gardens Primary School and the pedagogy that you use? So Manor Gardens is uh, tucked just behind the university in, in an area of Durban called Manor Gardens and it's uh, over 50 years old. So it's a small school which makes a difference. I say small school because we're able to do a lot of the activity-based learning because we're a small school. Our classes don't go much higher than 22 and we usually have two or three classes per grade. So in total from grade R right through to grade 7 we have probably about 480 children, sometimes less, but that makes it a really optimal environment for what we do It's small mm -hmm. school. Manor Gardens has got a 
very particular approaches linked with pedagogy that we use. So in the foundation phase, teaching reading is done through the psycholinguistic approach. And that essentially, and I'm really going to be uh, not using the theory now when I explain, but essentially yeah. children are learning to read from telling their teachers their news. Their teacher writes it down on a strip. They cut up that strip and they manipulate all the, letter, the um, words and they learn to read their own writing. And so apart from that and the, and the particular approach to the reading, we don't have readers, uh, you know, like gym readers or sets of readers that we read from. Our wow. children, we've got a reading room at our school specifically for the children and they go into the reading room every single day and they select books that are at their reading level they read to their teacher, they take those books home. So that establishes an, an unbelievably solid foundation in reading. Wow. And reading and a love is... For, a, love for, a love for reading, I can presume, because mm. um, am I yeah. hearing you right that there's no chip and biff? No, no chip and biff. You won't find chip and biff or Meg, Meg the hen and Deb the rat. None of that. Um, and we teach reading from whole to part. So uh, children are taught in how they read. They are taught decoding strategies. They're taught how to use the context clues. Um, and mm -hmm. all of these are very important for cognitive, your cognitive development and your comprehension when you mm -hmm. get higher up the school of being able to actually understand what the text means that you're reading and also to be able to in, uh, infer, to predict. If a word is unfamiliar, you can make meaning of that word just by using the context of the words around it. So it's a very, it's a very um, beautiful approach and immerses children in reading from the very beginning. As you say, a love of reading. A love of reading leads to curiosity about all sorts of different things. It also leads to asking great questions and it develops all sorts of skills, which are very important when working with text, comprehension skills. Um, so one of the other beautiful things about Manor Gardens is that everything is integrated. Mm -hmm. We don't have um, we don't have separate subjects or content areas, and that's based in the language across the curriculum approach. And we use the content as a vehicle. So the content is a vehicle. It's not to impart the content for content's sake. Mm -hmm. So we work in the senior phase. We work with theme-based teaching. Okay. So we choose okay. topics that children are interested in, that are age appropriate. Dinosaurs being a very common one. Anybody that's ever been involved with children knows at some point they'll be fascinated with dinosaurs. Uh, teachers create their own materials at Manor Gardens. We don't use textbooks. And so a theme will be created around dinosaurs. And in that we can integrate the life sciences, the earth sciences, the social sciences, and language is what, is what we I love that. We were talking about it in a recent, in a previous uh, podcast episode about project-based um, project based education, yeah. and I'm presuming that's the same. Uh, yeah, so with a theme, yeah, so with a theme, you can get lots of engagement and activity. You choose a project. That's, uh, it, this kind of what I'm talking about happens more, let's say, in the senior phase than it would in the foundation phase, but in the senior phase, we create a project, we build all of our learning around that project and we, we really do focus on skills. So more than just memorization of facts and pure recall, 
there is a place for that. There's definitely a place for that. If you're studying history, for example, you have to learn those dates off by heart. And you have to be able to recall those, those dates. But there's so many ways, so many different products, especially nowadays with the tools that we've got through the technology, of creating really interesting projects that focus the learning, but also then will give you all of the skills and the competencies that you can then assess. So it's efficient and it's effective. You're not doubling up. So linking my, the language, for example, the English with the history or with the geography and the science, it gives the children such a, a, a broad overview of how everything is connected together. And that's how life is. I mean, life is connected. It's integrated. And at a point when you realize you can't separate one thing out from another, that's when you really are getting a sense, I believe, of the magic and the miracle of life. Yeah. How each thing is, is related to each other thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that you don't have to, because the bell rings, you don't have to stop your maths class to move on to your geography class because... Because maths is very much a part of geography, and absolutely, absolutely. once they connect that, then yes. they've got the magic of, of, I suppose, learning and the curiosity that you're talking about. Yes. Um, and and tell me about so at Manor Gardens, um, how does it work with the um, assessing the kids? And and I know that's always a big thing with some of the schools that I've engaged with is like, well, we have to do the work because we have to be able to assess them to move them up. How does that work? Yes. So, you know, all of these things that we're talking about, pedagogies, approaches, assessment, they, they need to be um, interrogated. They shouldn't just be the word assessment. It's not, it's not just assumed that how I view assessment is how the next teacher will view assessment. So assessment is essentially, it's checking in to see what the children have in place and where you need to, what you need to do to move them to your next marker or milestone. That's assessment. So assessment can happen in a number of different forms, a number of different forms. A test is a particular form of assessment. An exam is another form of assessment. But so is dance, another form of assessment. Writing a script for a play can be a form of assessment. Giving a persuasive argument as to why you should be president of the class in our unit on democracy and citizenship is another form of assessment. There are many, many assessment tools. It doesn't only have to be in the form of a formal test. Formal assessment has its place, but continuous assessment also has its place. And continuous assessment is assessment of the ongoing learning. So if you are aware of what the skills and competencies are that you are wanting to assess, then assessment becomes integrated into everything that the children are doing. So how, like to me, what makes Manor Gardens different? How do you get it right? It sounds, number one, it sounds like, a lot of hard work and I know teachers are very passionate about the work that they do but this does sound like a lot of hard work why are you doing this and we getting this so right yeah so um this language across the curriculum approach um we have there's just an, one more thing that I have to say before I answer your question Judith is that we also adopt the social constructivist approach to how children learn and how they create knowledge 
So social constructivism is led by Gotsky and Piaget, and it proposes that children learn best in a social environment and that they learn best by working alongside others and sharing what they know, attaching it to their experiences and creating new knowledge out of that. So the approaches are nestled into lots of collaborative work, cooperative work, group work, and it is a lot of work to create it, but it's been going for, for years, for years. The language across the curriculum approach was adopted in 1978 at Manor Gardens as an approach, and when all of the other curriculum uh, initiatives came in over the years, Manor Gardens just steadfastly stuck to language across the curriculum. So why are we still doing it? We're still doing it because we know it works. Because we know it works and because Manor Gardens in its history have had a collective community of teachers and parents that stood up for this particular approach, that knew its value and fought for it, fought to maintain it as, as a community. And and here we see the results that yes. this, is, this is the Over approach. time, yeah, over time. Um, so I think in all the changes of the curriculum uh, the, that we've had, I think a lot of valuable things have been lost. I think if there are teachers listening, they won't find what I'm saying to be new to them. They will at some stage have either worked with it themselves and then moved to a school where it just kind of dissipated. I think that that is a tragedy of education is that you've got these, you've got teachers who are so passionate about um, kids learning and creating this learning environment, but then, you know, stuck in a system that's not working uh, for anyone, I don't think, uh, teachers no. or kids. No. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, my my dream is, I'm sure it's your dream, is to see a school like Manor Gardens on every on every corner in, in every suburb because Absolutely. surely this is the way of, this is the future of education, surely. Yes, because it encourages learning, which, as I said in the beginning, that's what we need. Um, it encourages critical thinkers. When children are part of the process of their learning, when they are engaged in activity-based learning, where they're investigating or inquiring before they're given the formula, before they're told the answer, they're given an opportunity to just explore, to experiment, mm. to come to their own conclusions, and then we share it in discussion as a whole class. And people can see in the group, oh, your idea was really good. What if we lent your idea and we joined some of my idea together? What if we got now? So the role of the teacher then is to teach at times, but also to guide at times and to facilitate at times. So it's not just one role that the children are playing and another that the, that the teacher's playing. We're all learning together. I can't tell you how many times I've been in the role of the, of the student and the children have taught me, especially mm. because I'm 51 mm. and I'm not familiar with the technology. I'm just not familiar and all the shortcuts that I need to know and to get the data projector working and the sound up on the laptop, the children tell me. I don't even bother to pretend that I know. I just say, oh gosh, I can't do this. Who can do this? So we're a community of learners. We are not separating out 
the children from the from the adults in the community. And sometimes, sometimes there are things that I know more about, and then I get to be the voice that's heard the most. And other times, I'm the one that doesn't want to be the voice. I just want to observe what the children are doing, watch how they're making their, how they're forming their ideas, and how they're coming up with their reasons. And all of this that I'm describing gets firmly embedded in the curriculum as the framework that I'm following so that when I'm watching the children, I know what I'm looking at because I know what skills and competencies I'm working with. So, I mean, just for the listeners, my, my next question was, what do you personally do differently as a teacher and why? And I think we've answered we've answered that. And it is for, for what I'm hearing, you said the kind of three roles that you play and the one is sort of teaching and, and helping with the curriculum, but the other is the facilitation um, and and just guiding the, the children, yes. um, which I think kind of is the beautiful part of it and perhaps where we need more focus on. And we design. So we design our learning environments with great uh, intention. Our learning environment doesn't just happen. It's not just something that can be accidentally done. So designing in terms of designing a project that the children are going to work on. For example, when we were doing uh, a section on biomes, instead of just delivering that information or taking the children to the computer room for them to do some research on biomes, we did world biomes as a whole class. And then we had a travel travel in Daba, an African travel in Daba. And I set up the brief to be that you've got your own tourism business and you've been invited to attend this travel in Daba. And we had some video footage from the travel in Daba at the ICC that happened in 2019. So the children got a visual of what it looked like. And we set up this whole project that they would be going to this, this in Daba where they would have to present a travel package to a biome in South Africa. So we went from the biomes worldwide that we did together. And in that, all the activities were set up so that the children could actually have a practice with what they would have to do independently. So you ask about assessment. I got some continuous assessment while I was working with them in the world biomes. I got my formal assessment from what they presented. They had to do a travel brochure. They had to build a diorama. They had to make business cards. They had to create their travel package. They had to give a presentation to the class where they had to persuade us to buy their package to visit their biome. And then their final thing was they set up their dioramas in the hall and we invited some of the children from the other classes, grade threes and some of the other, and they came to the exhibition and they had to answer questions from the people. All of that is in the curriculum. It's all in the curriculum. Language, writing, reading, research, oral presentation, it's all there. So this is from, this question comes from a very non-teacher to a teacher. How do you how do you know how to do that? Like, is it just intrinsically in you as a teacher who is passionate, or is it just learning to be curious and experimenting and all the good things that we're teaching and and asking our kids to be? Are you just now just drawing on all of that? Like, it just seems massive. And how do you know how to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, Jude. I'm curious, and I myself. Um, uh, I'm a student. I'm a really good student. And so I'm, I'm curious about all sorts of things. I'm curious about the 21st century. When I'm watching my children, particularly my boy children, over the eight years that I've been at Manor Gardens, 
and I see that they're disengaged in certain activities, but they're engaged in others, I explore that. I go and I research. I get onto Google because all the information is out there. I don't have to come up with it on my own. And I go, activities for boys, fun activities for boys. And then I take those fun activities and I look to see where they fit in with the curriculum. And that's how the project, that's how the activity-based learning got started, to try to get the children more engaged. But I was aiming for boy children. And I know that what I've seen is that they like to build and make and they like things to be processes, process rather than lots of writing and creativity. And they'll do all of that around a project that you give them. But don't just give them only the writing and the creative creative writing. They like the And then I just, I generalized it. I didn't just say it was only for boys. I said, well, girls are going to love it too. And then I looked at the curriculum and I thought, okay, what aspects of the curriculum that I need to cover could I use this kind of activity for? And then, you know, Google, it's like a rabbit hole. Yeah. Once you start one thing, those search words lead you to the next thing and the next thing. And I just started collecting like folders and folders of information until now it's embedded in me. So now I almost have like a formula. Anything that we're doing, any theme that we're doing, it involves inquiry and investigation. There's no telling. There has to be a real life product. And these are lists that you can get off of the internet. Lists of skills for 21st century learning. Lists of competencies for 21st century children. Um, so I've got lists and lists of products, different products that children can do that meet different um, learning requirements from the curriculum. And then I just put them together and I see what works. And I'm not afraid to take risks. And they're not foolish risks. They're calculated risks. But I'm quite happy to get it horribly wrong. I'd rather try it and see if it works. Yeah. And I'm happy to put up with some mess. And I'm happy to have some noise. And I'm tolerant of things being in process. So this whole thing that I've just described, that was a week in the making. But in that week, the children had already done the scaffolded parts that they needed to do with me. When it came to putting it all together, I observed them. I observed them in the doing, in the making. There's my assessment, who's on task, who's prepared, who can manage themselves, who shares with others, who asks good questions to get their needs met, who stands by helplessly when the thing that they planned didn't work and doesn't have a plan B. And I'm doing all of that by observing. I'm watching the children as they put together their exhibition for the design endeavor. So, and I'm, yeah, you've and got to research. Presuming, I'm presuming that you're doing assessments also not just to get the, give the kids a 6 out of 10 or a 3 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, but to actually find where they are lacking in their learning to be able to help them get to where Absolutely. they're supposed to be as opposed to you're not, a good, you're not good enough and no. moving on. And yeah. before I'm even looking for the gaps, I'm looking for what they're doing really well. That's my starting point. Yeah. What are they doing really well? And my assessment is with rubrics. So a rubric is where you set out the criteria before the children even get the brief. When we set up something that we're going to assess, it goes home with the criteria. So the children know exactly what they're being assessed on. Exactly. And then it goes on a range from like five to one. Five being excellent, got it and one being not yet. Kim, it sounds like you have got just a treasure chest full of content and ideas. Um, 
I'm not too sure you're at the stage yet where people can connect with you to to pick your brain. I'm not too sure where you are and if you've got any plans. But um, is there anything that is there anything that you can help with, or, or if so, if a teacher is is curious, where do they go to for this? Okay, so if a, if a teacher is curious, they should email me. Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes. So that's a great starting point. Thank you. Right. Let me wrap this up because um, I do plan to, to continue this conversation on an ongoing basis. But for today, what is your parting advice for teachers and schools who are curious about adapting their teaching approaches? My advice to the, to the schools is to get a sense of what is possible. Reimagine what is possible. We tend to say we can't do it. That tends to be our default. No, we can't do it because of cats. No, we can't do it because of the curriculum. But we're doing it. At Manor Gardens, we're doing it. And if, if as a starting point, teachers, either individually in their classrooms or collectively in a school, can say, how can I imagine or reimagine learning for these children? What do I know about these children? And what do I know in my heart works best for them? And start having conversations with other teachers in the school. And look at what is possible. It doesn't have to change in huge quantum leaps. Incremental changes can make a huge difference over time. That's how you shift things. You shift them so minusculely it looks like nothing's happening. Another starting point within an individual is to ask yourself, as a teacher, what really sparks your passion? What makes, what is a great day for you? And then look at what happened in that great day. I guarantee you, a great day for a teacher is not when you stood in front of the children for three hours and just imparted information. A great day is when the teacher, when the child sparked something, when something lit up. Okay, what was happening when that happened? And can you do more of that? Can you introduce more of that into, into your day? Can you allocate time where you will take a risk and do things differently and look at the evidence? And then as a teacher, would you be brave enough to do the things we're asking the children to do themselves? Would you become yourself a learner and do the things you're expecting of the children in your class and just see what the results are? Just play. Just play a little bit more. I love that. I love what you say about just being, and whether it's a teacher or a parent, it's just Absolutely. being brave enough to to be and do what we're asking our kids to do, um, and the, and and getting the skills that we're asking our kids to do, we need it just as much. Absolutely, yeah. and you know what, Jude, you're going to take an action, you're going to get a result, you're going to look at that result, and you're going to make an adjustment. The sky will not fall in. Mm-hmm. The sky will not fall in. And when you start moving in this direction, it gains a momentum of its own. And once it's gained a momentum of its own, my second thing then is reach out to the people that are just a little bit further ahead of where you're at and look to them for support. So in this case, reach out to me on email, reach out to Manor Gardens. If a whole school is interested, we definitely, definitely are going to... Um, you know, talk some more, you and I, but we've got things going on at Manor Gardens, a project that's in, in its process. We are absolutely open to sharing what we're doing there. 
Amazing. Yeah. I think this is going to be wonderful. Kim, thank you so much for this chat. Um, I love I love chatting with you. Thank <laughs> and you. And I look forward to many more. Um, mm. and, but for today, yeah, so we'll, we'll put your contact details in the show notes and we will chat again very soon. Wonderful, Jude. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I can't tell you. It's just, it's, you know, I, I had a thought, a teacher, a, a, a person that I did consciousness teaching with, taught us about an idea whose time has come and I just I really feel like this combination it's an idea whose time has come and it's so it's going to be it's we're going to do it we're going to do it the thing that you're dreaming about we're going to do it and and as we say, twenty first century skills with collaboration. We can't do this on our own. We need no. to collaborate to, no. to get this right. And and here we are. Yeah. And the more the more people collaborating, the further we're all going to go. So absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and we're not required to be experts at everything. We're required to be experts at what we're passionate about. I'm passionate about education. That's what makes me curious. That's why I can tell you I've got all of this material. I can do this. I can do that because I'm passionate about it. And it doesn't mean that I have to now become passionate at being able to do a podcast, market it, find the networks. That's not where my passion lies. It's not even where my interest lies. I just know that to get the message out there, that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. But my passion can meet in your passion. Then, then the possibilities are, are endless for what can be achieved. That's the 21st century. That's how we change the world. Thank you, Really cool. Thank you so much. I do hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Kim as much as I did. I will be having Kim back on the podcast on a regular basis as I believe that she has got such... Um, a treasure chest of knowledge and resources to share with us so hit the subscribe button if you don't want to miss any of our upcoming episodes or do or join our facebook group or you could even sign up for our our newsletter so that we can keep you updated with the guests that we have on our show as well as any other resources that we provide otherwise thank you so much for listening and we look forward to having you back here in a few weeks time